I was immediately blown away because I was coming from a very regulated field of medicine into what is sometimes referred to as the wild, wild west of medicine. And that is the field of infertility because of the lack of really standardized policies and regulations. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I believe that stories save us, and that's why I've spent my life immersed in books. First as a writing professor, and now as an award-winning author who leads women's writing and wellness workshops and retreats. I find that no matter how zen we strive to be, life rarely goes as planned. But stories are our steadfast companions. And since the last few years have brought huge transitions to everyone, including me, I wanted to talk to other women who have lived real lives and have been audacious enough to share all the messy, joyous, complicated bits. I thought I could learn a thing or two from them about writing and healing and about, well, being human. And it's been one of the greatest thrills of my life. So join me for powerful conversations with today's top women writers and wellness experts who go beyond the surface level and into that deep, raw, honest place, the heart of the story. Hi friends. Today's conversation is one of the most powerful ones I've ever had on this show. And we're almost 130 episodes in because we are talking about infertility. And some of you may be going through this right now or have gone through it, but odds are, even if you haven't, you know someone who has or is. One in six couples struggle with infertility, and this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. My husband and I went through two years of infertility and went through different IVF treatments while ultimately we conceived our son naturally and he is now 10. This is something that I think about still a lot because it was such a difficult time when we were going through it and it felt very lonely and I was yearning and desperate for hope and I didn't know where to turn. And I know so many women and couples who experience the exact same feelings. I wrote a memoir about our experiences. It's called Of This Much, I'm Sure, and it was published in 2017. And in the last six years, I cannot even count the amount of messages that I've gotten from people going through infertility. And I always felt like my email response back wasn't enough. I wanted to give something more, something to give hope, to make them feel seen. And when I learned about Hillary, Alberta Shearer, our guest today, who's an infertility researcher, I thought, this is it. This is the conversation I want to be able to give to those who are going through infertility and those supporting friends who are going through infertility because Hillary's mission is to humanize infertility, to make people feel seen and to give them hope. 
And that is exactly what this conversation does. In addition to giving so many powerful resources so that people can self-advocate when going through treatment or when searching for the best doctors or clinics, what to do when current treatment plans aren't working. This episode is so full of the emotional, mental, and practical research support for those going through infertility. I think this is a vital conversation to listen to. So here is my conversation with infertility researcher, Hillary Alberta Shearer. I've been pondering for quite a while how to best have a conversation about this topic. And then I met a very kindred spirit, Hillary Alberta Shearer. When we started talking, I knew that she would be the exact perfect person to have a conversation with, and even better that we get to have a conversation on this podcast so that you all can hear it and share it with those who might need it. So let me tell you a little bit about Hillary before we get started. She is the founder of Humanize Infertility, and essentially that is what she's working to do with one woman, one couple, one story at a time. And she wants to empower those who are struggling with infertility by providing knowledge, hope, and connection. And she also has so much experience. <laughs> so she's a biotechnology researcher. She has 15 years of clinical research experience. She has a BS in biology, an MS in public policy, and a PhD in biotechnology policy and ethics. <laughs> My friends, she has done her duties in being educated and having so much experience in this realm of research. Welcome on the show, Hillary. Thank you so much, Nadine. That was a really, really thoughtful and kind intro. I'm excited to be here with you. Oh, I know that you are going to provide so much knowledge and hope and empowerment to this community, and it's going to be a really powerful conversation. So let's just kind of give listeners a bit of background about, first of all, how you got into this line of work and what your daily life looks like in this field. Love this question. So when I started this, it was in my master's program. And at that time, I'd already been doing clinical research for probably six years or so. And in my world of clinical research, how you strike out your name when there's an error is regulated down to the color of your pen. And so I started working with my advisors and they were working on a grant around in this infertility space. And I was immediately like blown away because I was coming from a very regulated field of medicine into what is sometimes referred to as the wild, wild west of medicine. And that is the field of infertility because of the lack of really standardized policies and regulations. We have self-regulations, but there are not very many like regulations around it. So I was immediately drawn to this space because I work in an area where we're saving lives and that's regulated. And I was like, why don't we have that for a field of medicine that's trying to create life? 
that is really where I got hooked. So I did my master's and I did my PhD in this field of infertility. I focused a lot around egg donation and risks and benefits provided to the egg donor. I just wanted to talk to as many people as I could going through infertility. And my advisor said, that is a wonderful idea, but you will be here till you are 80. Mm -hmm. So my dissertation narrowed down. And when I finished, I realized you know, my work isn't done here. There is still so much to do. I did not stay in academia. Sometimes I feel like that work is so important, but it can stay up in the cloud sometimes. And I wanted to be like on the ground, really hearing and seeing individuals going through this and just putting a spotlight on it. One, for an advocacy point of view, but then second of all, the lack of research. And where do we get that from the people actually going through this? And so that is how humanized infertility really came about. My day-to-day is really providing a safe space for, in particular, women that are going through infertility, hearing their journey, really seeing them, hearing their words, hearing their pain, shining a light on that, and then trying to help find a path forward, whether it, and to feel empowered. And I, you read it out loud, but it's empowered with knowledge, hope, and connection. And I also provide, this is something new that I've started, but I'm starting to provide research guidance. Let's hear your specific story. And most of the time women say, I have to like become a full-time researcher. And sometimes I don't even know when I do find it. I don't even know what I'm looking at. I don't know what it means. And then what does it mean to you? And I think that is the most important part. What does it mean to you and your story and what you're going through? And I'm not an MD, make that very clear. I'm not an MD, but I can help provide some of that support. And I always say it's like finding a home in yourself again too, because I think that's the biggest thing. You feel broken. You feel like you have no power. You have, you're just living in the land of unknown. And can we help you feel a little bit more at home in your body more empowered. You can walk in, you know, questions to ask to your doctor and you just feel like you've got a little bit more control over what feels completely out of your control. Mm. Hillary, you know that I wish I had you in my life (laughs) 12 years ago. I wish I was there. (laughs) Really? Because everything that you provide is what I needed and didn't have. So to kind of quickly recap my own infertility journey for any listeners who don't know, in 2011, shortly after my husband and I got married, we knew based on his medical history, he had cancer in his past that we would have some fertility struggles. And we pretty soon started going down the IVF route. And along the way, even though I am an educated, independent, non-naive person, Mm -hmm. the want and desire to have a child led me to kind of not question certain things. Mm -hmm. It led me to put my hands up rather than advocate in certain situations. And yet in other situations, I just innately found that something in me was going, this doesn't feel right. And then I would Mm -hmm. push back. And I just, I felt like when we were going through different procedures and signing different paperwork and working with the clinic and working with a couple different doctors that I just 
I never quite knew when I was underreacting, mm-hmm. when I was overreacting, what my rights were, what I was signing because mm-hmm. the pages were many and the fine print was small. Mm-hmm. And when I would try to do research, I would do these Google searches and would feel so overwhelmed and then would feel scared mm-hmm. and then sometimes just not look at all. Mm-hmm. And then I also felt alone. I felt very alone in just not knowing who to turn to, not knowing many people at the time that had gone through infertility and IVF. So to have you in my life would have been incredible. And I ended up going in for an egg retrieval procedure that resulted in my left ovary not clotting, which led to severe internal bleeding, which led to emergency life-saving surgery. And then I had a couple of failed IVF rounds in the months and years that followed that. And so we had two years of infertility and IVF treatments and um, in the end ended up conceiving our son naturally. And I say all of these things to set up two very important messages that I want to say. One is that I'm not anti-IVF because I have many, many friends for whom they have a family because of IVF. Though it did not work for me, I am fully in support of it. I just wish that I had been more supported and had known better research techniques and had known, had the knowledge when I went into it. Secondly, sometimes I don't even like to share that we conceived our son naturally by surprise when the doctor said we couldn't because when I was going through infertility, I hated hearing that story because it was like, oh, must be nice, must be nice for you to just conceive naturally after, you know, all this time. And so no matter where our journeys take us in fertility and in infertility, and no matter what our paths look like, and they will all be different, I think it is vital for us to have as much support as possible. And so that is why today we are talking about how we can support ourselves and advocate for ourselves and how we can be a support system to our loved ones who might be on the infertility path. So that's just a bit of my backstory for anyone who doesn't know it. So Hillary, when people come to you, what do you notice about how they're typically doing emotionally? The emotional... So I think a lot of people who don't know a lot about the infertility journey or haven't been on that journey themselves, the first thing they think of is they hear and think about all the shots and they're like, Ooh, that's a lot of shots. And they think physical, the emotional burden is so heavy and it's a burden that you don't just get to let go of at any point. So there's the burden that you have to carry as you're going through that infertility journey. And let's say you get pregnant. Well, now you have pregnancy after loss. I mean, you might hear that phrase a lot. How do you get excited again about like every single day? It's not the same way as someone who's never had that loss and now they're pregnant or have been through X amount of IVF cycles like you were mentioning. And then there's 
this, okay, maybe you have the baby in your arms, but no one actually could tell you why you experienced infertility. And maybe you want a second or a third child. And so I've had, you know, women talk to me before about, I have this beautiful child, but I'm still in my mind, I'm still infertile because no one actually told me what the reason was. And it felt like we threw spaghetti up against the wall is what I hear a lot. We throw spaghetti, something stuck. And now I have this beautiful child. But if I want to have a second, like the first one's not even out yet. And they're already thinking, how are we going to go through all of this again? And the biggest component, there is a financial component, physical a lot of the women don't talk to me as much about the physical. It's when you hit that emotional burden. And like you said, they feel incredibly alone and they feel broken and they feel, they feel really lost. They feel lost with it, you know, in themselves of like, we learned that you can just have sex and you'll be pregnant. And why mm. is that not happening for me? And of course, there's so many other nuances to it. And so many different factors that we just don't learn about. And so that emotional burden is definitely what I hear about the most, what we talk about the most, and just trying to find a way for, like you said, I always say open heart, open hand is how I try to approach everything. And can I show up with an open heart and an open hand so that someone doesn't feel so alone? Because that is the common thread in every story that I hear. Every story is unique. But that is what I think ties it all together. And I also think that's why the community itself, the trying to conceive community is actually, I like to say it's really beautiful. I mean, they really want to uplift one another because they each know it's that emotional burden that they're trying to hold for each other a little bit more. Mm, yes, yes, yes. I found that when we were on our infertility journey, that the emotional was the most tumultuous path in addition to the physical and everything else. Because for us, it was, we knew some of the problem, but we didn't know all. Mm -hmm. So it, there was the unknown. And then it's, okay, well, we know part of the problem, but then why isn't it working? Yeah. So then there's this uncertainty. And then I've had friends for whom everything seems fine on paper, but nothing's happening. So there's still that like great mystery. And with everything else in our lives, almost, we have been taught that if we just work hard enough, we will achieve that thing. And this is one of those things that is not fully in our control. And that's maddening. And then in addition to it, I found the biggest emotional hurdle was within the partnership. So mm -hmm. it was this, I am having a different emotional experience than my partner is having, or mm -hmm. maybe my partner is not talking about the emotional burden that they are actually carrying. So maybe I think they're not, but it's just that they don't know how to talk about it. There is the, as the woman having to do more of the physical mm -hmm. within the treatment and then feeling the weight and burden of that, which then often leads to resentment, or maybe being the woman within the partnership that is the one who's like getting the ball rolling on everything 
everything, scheduling the appointments, talking to the doctors and feeling that invisible labor within this. I mean, we already feel invisible labor sometimes within a a domestic partnership, but then add to that the Mm -hmm. invisible work within trying to have a child. Mm -hmm. And then it's compounded by the emotion of that all of this is because we want a baby. We want a family. And that's emotional. <laughs> it is. And, you know, I I actually just finished up writing a story and I just shared it. And there was this one passage and I actually sent it back to the woman before I posted it. Because I said she actually is now, since we talked, she's had a baby. And I think she perfectly captured this emotional burden and how it goes beyond what someone might say, like, Oh, that's just, you know, the emotional burden of just not being able to have the child you wish for and how much deeper it is. And her point was, I'm not thinking about just right now. It's not just the emotional burden and the unknown of right now. She said, you know, I was just simply looking out my kitchen window, picturing what my husband and I had dreamed about for our future. And it's every day having to question, is that entire future completely erased and do you have to rebuild it into something else? And she said, you know, I want to be hopeful, but I also have to recognize and carry that burden of that dream, that vision I have may not come true. And so she was talking about, you know, I've always envisioned this house in a big field. She lives in Washington and she's like, you know, you've got the mountains. And she said, but my house is quiet. Mm -hmm. There are no footsteps. Mm -hmm. I turn in the back seat. There's no car seat. There's no child. And then you think about the holidays you and you, you know you just really start thinking about that and how so much of what we envision includes this family and now you're being faced with this burden of all of that may not happen and feeling completely out of control of that mm-hmm. and having to wake up every day i mean so many people say from the moment I open my eyes and even while I'm sleeping, it's exactly what you're saying. It takes over everything. It takes, you know, talk to another individual just recently who drove four hours to her clinic because she lived in a part of Canada where to get really good care, she had to drive four hours. So she drive four hours. So to your point, it's like your every day, like just the logistics of your every day and how that seeps into everything you drive four hours, you have your appointment, who knows what your appointment brings up. And now you have to sit down and work for eight hours because you're trying to pay for this whole ordeal. Mm -hmm. And she'd said, I give $20 to the coffee shop guy and get my food and drink for the day, work for eight hours, hop in the car and go home only to do it again, maybe in a couple of days, maybe a week. And Mm -hmm. she did that for over two years. So the bird, it just runs and it seeps into like every crevice of your life. It's not like you can compartmentalize it and say, here's the infertility bucket. And I'll check in on that mm-hmm. at 4 PM today when the to-do <laughs> list is open. It's, it's literally everything. And I think that's the part, it's just all consuming. Mm-hmm. And then how that plays a part and just how you can show up as just as yourself and as a partner and a daughter and a sister or whatever it may be. In another individual, I think also said it really nicely of like, she looks at herself in the mirror now and she's like, I'm not the same person that I was mm-hmm. when I started this journey. Mm-hmm. And I kind of picture it as like, you feel like all of the pieces of you, you just kind of fall apart, but every day you have to manage to put those back together to figure out a way forward. That's where I feel like, how can we provide 
more support for being able to put those pieces back and feeling like, okay, I know where we're going and I don't know what it's going to look like, but just to feel like you've got a little bit more support around you when you're having to go through that. Yes. Yes. You have completely captured how this feels and that obsessive anxiety. Mm, I remember the amount of pregnancy tests I took and just like, it was on my mind every day for years Mm -hmm. and then morphed into anxiety. Everything I put into my body, I would Mm. fear that it was doing harm. Like if I eat this food, if I highlight my hair, Mm -hmm. anything, I I had this hyper obsession with everything. Mm -hmm. Then it would also morph into jealousy, deep jealousy when I would Mm -hmm. see other people getting pregnant. Why them? Why not us? Why can't we both? And on and on friendships shifting and morphing because Mm -hmm. I wanted to be happy for other people but found that it was really hard to have both happiness for them and sadness for us. And then as you said about you're different. I remember specifically feeling after I had my life-threatening situation and kind of coming out of that and being um, homebound for two weeks with this big incision down my abdomen, I just felt so awful. And I just thought, what happened to the optimistic glass half full version Mm -hmm. of me because Mm -hmm. she doesn't exist anymore. And she did come back bit by bit, but um, the experience kind of at first robbed me of that, but in its place provided the deepest empathy that I've ever had for other people and what they're going through. So it's like I used to be naive and optimistic, but also not totally realizing all the hardships that people were going through. And after it was, okay, maybe I'm less optimistic, but I I now feel so much closer to the other humans in the world because I know that anybody walking around this planet is dealing with something far deeper than they're showing. So getting back to your point of like, we see the emotional toll that it takes, but the goal here is to have hope and provide support. So what do you say to the people who are carrying this emotional weight? And what do you say to their people, their support system about how we can help support? What does that look like? So starting, I guess, kind of where you ended with the question of how can we provide support? I think the very first thing is to just provide a safe space. You're not trying to fix anything because that's part of it. Like if there was a very easy answer, yes, someone would experience infertility, but it'd be like, you know exactly what to do. Come on in, follow these five steps and you're good to go. That's not what this journey is. And I think it's like that for a lot of hardships for people. You go to people and all of a sudden people, one individual I interviewed called it a hope bomb. And I thought that was really funny. She was like, I don't want to be hope bombed sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I call it bright-sided. I don't want to be bright-sided. Exactly. And so I think that's the very first thing is to be open. I think sometimes when people hear about this, they get uncomfortable. They don't know what to say. So they either avoid it completely. And honestly the biggest thing that I've heard from people is to just say, I'm here. 
I hold hope for you. A lot of times people say, oh, you're just so strong. And they're like, I don't want to be strong. Mm -mm. I don't feel strong at all. And so I think that's the other thing I sometimes tell individuals, like, rather than like, oh, you're so strong, you can do this. It's like, you know what, if you need to fall apart and just let it all go, I'm here and I am here for that. And there are going to be days where if you don't want to have hope, I'm going to hold that hope for you. Or I'm going to have that strength for you. If you can't stand up today, that's okay. And just to know that you've got someone in your corner to be able to like say that to you, it goes much further than the, oh, just relax or, oh, you know, your time is coming. Like none of those things are helpful, but just being an open heart and an open hand, I think they just want a safe place to land, a soft spot to land, I like to say sometimes. And I think for someone who's going through it, some of the things that I've heard from others that is kind of recurrent, the number one thing is finding like the little small joys. Mm -hmm. Don't look for the big things. It's not about, oh, I'm going to go on some big vacation and that's going to solve all my problems. I'm going to go on a self-care retreat. It's not that. That's not going to solve any of this. It's not going to put... I put a bandaid on it for the week that you're at the retreat, but it's finding the little tiny things, whether it's your cup of tea and your reading or whatever that might be, but finding what made you happy before you started this journey mm-hmm. and maybe making a list of what are those things. And again, keep them small, keep them really simple because they're actually not that simple. They're the things that are going to help provide a little bit of light on those super dark days. They're also going to help connect you. You're still that person that you were before deep down in there. You're going to be evolved. We're all evolving no matter what we're going through, but it's going to, I think, help reconnect. And again, it's adding that little bit of hope, little bit of light for yourself. The other thing is to let go of every day. I've got to be super positive about this and mm-hmm. If you've got a day where it just sucks and you're just over it, be over it. Give yourself that. You have to let yourself just kind of go through that. And then I think finding, even if it's one person, we talked at the beginning about how you can support someone, find that person for yourself. Maybe it's one person, maybe it's a group. Also recognizing that it may not be immediate family. It may not be your best friend. And I've talked to a couple women that have said, sometimes it's actually those individuals on the Instagram community or something like that, because it's someone who's gone through it. They understand, but sometimes your family and your friends, when they don't say the thing you want or you need, it hurts so much more than from a stranger because you have all these expectations and you're like, but that's my best friend. That's my mom. I mean, I have had one person who has talked about that. Like I had to train my mom on how to support me. And also going back to what you talked about, sometimes those closest to you, they're also carrying a grief and they're, you know, whether it be your partner, Mm. they have their own grief around this. Your parents, they're also grieving for you. They wanted this for you, knowing that you wanted this so bad. And so they can't show up maybe the way that you want them to. And that just adds more burden to you and and probably more guilt. And so just finding that support system, finding the little sparks of joy, don't try to make them big. And I think those are places to start. Mm -hmm. And then also just giving yourself that time to just say, yeah, this really, it's, it's not what I wanted. And, Mm -hmm. and, and it's okay to say that. And I think that's a big thing to, to give yourself. 
Yes. I remember giving the advice to other people of like when I or someone else shares their infertility story, like your only two jobs are to listen and hug. That's Mm, it. And then when you feel the need to say something, because you will literally just say this, that's so hard. That's Mm -hmm. all you have to say, those three words. Like, yeah. People don't want fixes, right? As you said, they just want validation that, oh my gosh, that is a lot. That is a lot. And mm-hmm. that's it. That's all they they want to hear. I love the, I'm holding hope for you. It's not, that is different from, well, look at the bright side or, oh, yeah. you just have to X, Y, Z. Right. I found this balance of, I really gravitated towards my husband's cousin during this process. And she said to me at one point, she said, you will have your baby of this much, I'm sure. And it was, I know it was so tricky about how to find exactly what to say to me that wouldn't set me off in anger. But the reason why my book is called of this much, I'm sure is because I just had to cling on to the fact that somebody else had hope for me because I couldn't Mm -hmm. have it anymore for myself. Mm -hmm. And maybe other people wouldn't like to hear those words. Maybe it's too much. But just the simple fact of I'm holding hope for you is huge. And then when you get to when you yourself are the person going through it, how to just keep going. I remember writing a chapter in my book about like, it was the over easy eggs and the blueberry tea every morning. That was like my little joy of like, just keep making the eggs, keep making the tea. These are the things Mm -hmm. that bring you joy. And while, you know, a self-care retreat or something won't solve the world's problems. I did find one interesting thing, which is what you said, go back to the things that did bring you joy. I had kind of like let go of my writing during our infertility experience. I was writing in my journal, but I wasn't like actively working on my creative writing. And at one point in the middle of all this, I was so angry. I just wanted to regain my life again and not have Mm -hmm. every decision I made revolve around shots and hormones. And, and so I said, I am going to this writing retreat in Mm -hmm. Guatemala. It was like so impractical, the most Mm -hmm. impractical thing, but something deep in my soul was like, you need to remember who you are again, because Mm -hmm. this is just draining any bit of you. That is you. And Mm -hmm. when I went and remembered oh, I love writing. Oh, this is what I like to eat every day. This is what I like to do. It just helps me remember myself in a way that I hadn't remembered her in a long time. So maybe there are activities that people can just be reminded of who they are. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I I mentioned it earlier. It's like coming home to yourself, figuring Mm -hmm. out where that home is because it's still there. It's covered up by a lot right now when you're going through this journey and it's messy and dirty and all of it. And it's finding ways to uncover that. So yes. And I always say like coming home to yourself so that you can be a home to somebody else. That's Mm. kind of how I always see it. And so, yes, if you are at a place where it feels like you can go on the retreat, go on the retreat, like do those say, cause I think that's the other thing. Some there's so many sacrifices you have to make or Mm. you feel like you have to make on this journey. And getting to a point where you're like, I'm not going to sacrifice 
my happiness in those little moments. And so mm-hmm. figuring out what that is for you, I think is really important to be able to get up and go again, because that's a question I ask everybody when I'm, we have our chat is the whole journey is hard, but there's one moment in particular that's really dark for everybody. And they all have that one. And I always follow it with, how did you get up and keep going? Because every single one has, and that is a recurring theme finding those little bits that remind me of who I am. That's what's helped them move forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you kind of get to this place of like, I can't do this anymore at this level. You kind of create these boundaries almost like I'm not giving up that anymore. And I'm going to mo- do more of this again, because mm-hmm. the way I'm living right now, is just, there's no me in this. Right. Yeah, you're lost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so let's get to the biggest part of this where your expertise is so valuable and I have none of this, which is the research components. So what you mentioned at the beginning is the astounding fact that so much of this infertility treatment world is unregulated is just a wild west, as you say. So maybe just give us some of the facts about that. Like, how do we even begin to research this? This is a big one. So ASRM is our self-regulations. And you can go on to their website and maybe we can provide a link in the show notes where you can go on and you can see what is suggested. I actually just listened to a podcast recently from a reproductive immunologist who I think summed it up really nicely. And he said, you know, we've got these self-regulations. By the time they come out, sometimes they're like five years behind, like where like Mm. everybody's going with the technology because the technology is just booming and growing faster than we can keep up. And that is not something just unique to, you know, infertility treatment. That's in general with especially medical biotechnologies, I would say. Policy is always a step behind. What's unique about the reproductive area is that you don't have very specific places to go to even find out about, okay, I have X, Y, and Z condition. How can I find out about this? I was asked this when I was preparing my dissertation. One of the committee members said, where does one go? And I said, well, that's why I'm here. That is why I'm doing my dissertation is to bring more light to that. More and more, I'd say there's some newer startups and that sort of thing that are trying to create some libraries online. And I've I've looked at some of them, but I feel like they don't go all the way where you might be able to find research, but it's just the article. And then you're just kind of left there and you're like, okay, but again, how does this apply to me? And oftentimes I hear in conversations with women, well, they'll start at Instagram and I don't blame them one bit. And they say, I don't take everything as truth there, but that's where I can start to get ideas on like what to research and what to ask my doctor. And I have been so motivated by the fact, I love that that's available that should not be the only thing available for women going through this, especially we have amazing clinics here in the U.S. And it, I've talked to women who've gone to them and it's really interesting because I'm like, 
do they give you anything? And it's like, sure, there's maybe some pamphlet, but like, you know, sometimes they walk in for procedures and don't even really know what the procedure is or what it's for, or they're preparing for an egg retrieval. And I had one woman say, well, I came out from the ultrasound and my husband said, how did it go? And she said, I don't know. I don't even really know what we're looking for. And it was her husband asking her that, that was like, yeah, what are we looking for when I go into these ultrasounds? And that's part of what I'm trying to do to help. The thing about clinical research in this space is it's very, as you can imagine, it's hard to do standardized, randomized trials, which is our gold standard for a lot of clinical research. But I think that if we can shine more light as well on what women are actually going through, that's part of what I'm doing here. I think that eventually we're going to see more and more research because people are going to start demanding it. And that's part of what's going to drive that. And then I'm trying to provide that support to say, you know what, you're already carrying enough. And so let's hear your story and then let me dive into the research and let me kind of highlight some things that might be applicable to your story. And then how can we make that so it's digestible so that you even know what it's talking about? And then helping patients to be able to walk in with questions, they feel informed. So they're not like, you know, you said, like sometimes I'd have the energy to dive deep. And then sometimes I'm like, I'm just going to have to take you for face value. And because there's such a lack of information, I can't tell you how many stories I have of women who hit a wall with one clinic, go to another clinic, fresh set of eyes. Again, there's not a coherent regulation or research. And so you go with a fresh set of eyes and all of a sudden they're like, oh, no one checked your thyroid or no one checked your lining and how your lining was when we tried to implant just simple things like that. So then all of a sudden they start seeing results. They feel like they're moving forward again. And so being open to maybe having to change clinics and stuff, but I think that just further highlights the lack of coherency between things and standard practice is what I would say. There is not a standard practice for infertility treatment right now. And that is what I think women are bumping up against. And honestly, I I don't know, there will never be a playbook for it because everyone is so unique. The one other thing that I would say that I think is really important, there's another organization, SART, and all of the U.S. clinics need to report their success rates. And I've had women talk to me and say, well, it's really interesting because I'm an unknown infertility patient. And then I start feeling like they're getting frustrated with me because now on a business side, they want to keep me because I'm going to go through lots of rounds because we can't figure it out and we're not changing protocols. But then on the other side of it, they're having to report their success rates. And so the more I'm unsuccessful, that's going to play in to the success rates that they then report and people can go out and go, that's a great clinic because look at their success rate. And so I think that's a place to start, but you also have to, this is like the final print that they don't include of what's behind that and how are clinics, one, how are they defining it? How are they trying to work it so that they have the best success rate out there? But there's a whole story behind that rate that I don't think is transparent enough for, for women yeah, and couples just in general going through it. 
And I soon want to get to, you know, what are the best questions to ask and ways to self-advocate. But if someone is doing a Google search or is about to try to, on their phone, try to find some information, are there any good practices for the self-research? Yeah. So I think Google is a good place. I mean, like if that's, that's where you feel comfortable. If you want to get to like actual scholarly articles, there are two places I would go. There's Fertility and Sterility is an academic journal. I would start there, Fertility and Sterility. You can go to the CDC's website as well. They take a lot of the clinic data that is reported every year. The reports don't come out yearly, but you can go on and you can manipulate different graphs of what is the success rate and I have endometriosis, like you can put different filters on. It's not going to be exact, but I think it's one of the best sources for looking at like hard data. So the CDC, fertility and sterility, if you really want, if you're feeling like really ambitious, Mm -hmm. I would say, instead of Google, I would go to PubMed. And this is a database of a whole bunch of scholarly journals. And you can go in there and you can put in, I'm just going to use like infertility and PCOS, or, you know, you can put a little bit more and it's going to bring up all of the articles. The other thing I would do is every time you're doing these searches, even on Google, like if you're going to do Google, go to Google Scholar and start Google Scholar. It's going to be like PubMed, but maybe it feels a little bit easier to manipulate. And then the other thing I always recommend to individuals, the super old articles are great for historical context but go and do the last five years. And you can put that filter on any of your searches and make it like the last five years. Sometimes I even make it shorter depending on what the technology is that I'm looking at because what happened 10 years ago, nobody's doing it anymore. I mean, I was actually just reading something about fibroids and the way we're even treating and looking at uterine fibroids now compared to 10 years ago is night and day. Mm. And so you want to narrow that search so that you're not pulling up an article and then you're going in going, you know, doctor, look, I saw this. Is this something that could help me? Because it may not even be relevant anymore. And that's just like a really like minute detail that could actually change the whole perspective on what you're looking at. So those are places that I would start And I think that you'll actually get to like, if your doctor's looking at research, that is what they're looking at. And I think you want to be able to speak their language. They don't like Google. We all know that they're like, you Googled yourself. Mm -hmm. And I've had women I've talked to that haven't worked with me personally, but have printed out articles and like taking that in your doctor receives it in a much different way because it is, it's what they would consider the hard science. Yes. Oh, so good. And any podcasts or books you'd recommend? Oh, yeah. I do have some really good podcasts that I could recommend. There are a couple of doctors and maybe I we can add them to the show notes. Yeah. The one that I really love is Dr. Natalie Crawford and she's out of Texas. She started her own practice, but she's just got like a weekly podcast that it just breaks everything down really minutely really easy to digest, lots of different topics. And then she's got like a great YouTube channel so that you can go on and search exactly like what you want to learn about. And it's like a 10 minute video. Again, you don't need to become an expert, but you want to feel more informed about it. And I think she also has some really great 
kind of like before procedure, know this sort of things. Mm-hmm. Also, Egg Whisperer is another podcast that I really like. For, and um, totally blanking on the name of that doctor. Um, but that's another one who is a doctor, brings on other individuals in the field that I think is really important. But I have a couple others that I'll share with you to make sure that we put in the notes um, so that people have some good podcasts to refer to. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, just this alone, having the couple of like search engines to use, having podcasts to listen to, because I find that nowadays so much of us are more likely to listen to something rather than Mm -hmm. do the research. So so helpful. And the last thing that I want to close with is the self-advocacy piece, the questions we should be asking. I can do so much woulda, coulda, shoulda. One of my major regrets is that we didn't switch doctors and or switch clinics early enough because we did end up switching doctors, but I wish I had done it sooner. I wish that we had gotten more second opinions. I wish Mm -hmm. that we had been more confident to ask questions and would have known which questions to ask. So Mm -hmm. maybe you can share with us which questions to be armed and informed with and possible pivot points, you know, like switching clinics if need be, or just how to advocate for yourself. I love that because I think that is at the heart of a lot of what I'm trying to do right now is I want to help advocate for you, but I want to help you become your best advocate. Because at the end of the day, I think that is the most important thing, whether it be for infertility or anything else. But I'd start with an overall, don't take everything at face value. And even when it's coming from your doctor and The first thing is if you're going in and you're asking questions and you don't feel like you're being heard with those questions or you're being rushed, that should be a flag right there. That might not be the right person for you. And I say that because like I just talked about with the research, it's changing all the time. You want someone who's going to be open, who's going to be curious about your case because it is unique. We've said that a couple of times and you want someone to be as curious as you. The biggest thing in terms of questions, why? Like, don't be afraid to ask why and what does this mean? So if they tell you we're going to do X, Y, and Z, why? Why? And how does that relate to me? And why do you think that's the best way forward? Don't be afraid to ask those questions. I think why is sometimes you immediately feel like you're like doubting the the doctor or doubting whoever you're talking to. But I think when we're going back to how do you keep moving forward, you have to know your why. We talk about that with our own, like, you know, when you're going after a goal or something, what's your why? Your why is your fuel to go forward. I think it's just as important here to understand why you're doing everything that you're doing and what the physical, the shots, the different protocols, really understanding that and feeling like you understand it. And if you don't understand it, keep asking why. I think another really good, like, when do I pivot? Yeah, don't be afraid to get the second opinions. And, you know, I work with a functional medicine doctor for myself personally, and she works with a lot of infertility patients. Don't be afraid 
if you're open to it, to get those kind of different perspectives. It doesn't have to be another person and another traditional, you know, fertility clinic. And maybe you don't go that route, but just to arm yourself with all of these different perspectives, I think is really important. Yeah. So much was coming to mind as you were talking about the woulda, coulda, shoulda. One, we got a bad impression of our doctor first thing. And Mm -hmm. I wish we would have acted on switching doctors immediately. It just felt like there was so much time and energy and effort into just like getting both my husband in the same room at the same time and getting this appointment that just that in and of itself was just like, oh, seems like so much extra work to switch doctors. But so much might not have happened if we had switched doctors. So Mm -hmm. one, trust your instinct on the doctor. If they're making you feel rushed and like another dollar signs, essentially, then go. Secondly, the why question, like, wait a minute, if you knew it was a matter of my husband's motility and morphology, why were you all recommended to go straight into full IVF? Why wasn't like artificial insemination? And like, why did we go all the way here? And looking back, what I think they kind of wowed us with and tantalized us with was like, ooh, well, you do this and your odds are this. But if you do this, your odds are this. And of course, we're like, we want those better odds. Yes. But you have to ask yourself at what cost? Like, are Mm -hmm. you willing to undergo all of these physical things? And are the odds really what they say they are? So I, if I had gone back to my younger self, would have said, try functional medicine first. There's so much, and I have great compassion for my younger self because she did try hard. And after a while, it was just like, I have to just surrender and and trust because this is exhausting. So there Mm -hmm. is that too. But if someone is starting fresh and is open to advice, it's, yeah, see what more natural measures might be taken. Ask why. See if there's a holistic approach. If you're open to it, get more information. What is this? What can I expect? Ask how much you're going to be supported throughout the process. Because when I was going through it, granted, this was 12 years ago, I got a box on my doorstep on my 28th birthday of needles and hormones, and we got videos to watch. And I was like, really? We're just we're just following some YouTube videos and we're just, you're leaving this up to us. <laughs> Unfortunately, 12 years later, that's exactly what it is today. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. No. So it's like asking all the questions of how much support can be expected, I really think is huge. And I'm sure something else will, will come up, but this second opinion piece, I think, can really make all the difference. Being armed with questions and making sure you are not rushed as you are being led through this is really key. Yeah, I've had so many conversations with women. I mean, I'd say at this point, almost 50, 60% of those stories I've heard include that component of, I took my whole case to somebody else to get a second opinion. 
And we never went back to the first one. Like we sat down and immediately they were like, why did they do this? Why didn't they do that? And they feel seen. Like that's the biggest thing. If you do not feel seen and heard, this may not be the right place for you because now more than ever, you need to feel seen and heard. And, you know, another good question is, you know, around how many cases have you seen like mine? I think that's another interesting question that I've heard before because, so for instance, um, balance translocation, a genetic issue where there's a genetic component that's keeping the baby from being viable. And I had one individual who said, I asked the reproductive embryologist, how many patients have you treated with my particular balance translocation? And she was like, "Um, maybe one or two. Mm. And so this is after she'd been given all of this advice. Then she hears, oh, you've only treated about one or two individuals like me. Now all of that advice has a very different picture to it. And so don't be afraid to ask like how many people, I know they may not be just like me, but how many people have you seen like me? And if they did this protocol you're suggesting, what were those results? What did that look like for them? Don't be afraid to ask those questions and always go back to what you said. If you ask it and all of a sudden you're getting a lot of pushback, listen to that gut feeling and don't be afraid. Like that is your first advocacy step is like, if you feel that don't be afraid to go find the individual that does feel right, because that could be the difference between success and not. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And remember this always, you know, your body better than anyone, even if you are not an infertility doctor, you know, your body, what I ended up finding in year two of our two year journey was that I started really pushing back and advocating for myself. No, this doesn't feel right. This side effect feels weird. We need to be more conservative with the hormones. I don't like this. This feels off. Even with the technicians, when you're doing the ultrasound, please do this. This feels too intense. I just started speaking and speaking and speaking, and it felt awkward almost every time. The good girl in me was like, what? You don't have to be so high maintenance. And it was like, no. There was this other like bear part of me that was just like, this is my body. I know it. My job is to protect it, and I'm going to speak up. So feel that, know that, trust that. And then secondly, I would also say, If your doctor is not looking at both you and your partner, push for that doctor to also look at your partner because it could be crucial. I have a friend who a year and a half, they were concentrating on her, on her, on her, on her. And so much money was spent on the treatments only to find out when they switched doctors, it was like this, wait a minute, okay, so where's your husband's data? Where's the data on all of his reproductive components? And they were like, oh, he wasn't really looked at that much. Quick test was run and it's like, oh, you were never going to get pregnant. Like this is what's going on with your husband that needs to be fixed if you are going to get pregnant. And it's like, Ooh, let's just from day one have both parties involved be completely checked out. That is such good advice. I've heard one doctor in particular, a reproductive embryologist, and this is going back to what's standard and not. This is not a standard thing, but there are some doctors who will not pursue anything with the woman 
until the husband will come in and also go through testing because, and this is interesting, I heard that from that particular reproductive embryologist that same week had just done an interview with a woman who went an entire year going through egg retrievals and trying to get pregnant. Nothing was working. And then after a year, her doctor said, huh, we never looked at your husband. Let's look. And his sperm Mm -hmm. sample had zero sperm. And he actually ended up having to go to a reproductive urologist, which is also very important for the male factor. First, they were sent to just a urologist. You need a reproductive urologist. And turned out that he had a gene for cystic fibrosis that didn't show up at all only with his fertility because one of the main tubes to help everything come down with CF doesn't open up. It doesn't allow the sperm down. So no matter what they did, he was never going to have sperm. They were going to have to, you know, go through specific procedures. So anyways, it was just unbelievable. And that's a perfect example of what you've just shared as well of like, never take what you're going through as like, oh, well, I guess this is just the standard. I guess this is the best I can get because Mm -hmm. there's always going to be something else. And that's such a great example of, yes, there's some doctors who will say before we put you through all of this and not just physically, emotionally, but financially, how much money they threw at that for a year, only to find out no matter what they did, it was never going to work because he was still, you know, just giving sperm sample and everyone thought there was sperm in it and there was zero. And there never would have been anything unless Mm. they went in physically to get it. Mm. So, Mm. Oh my goodness. And on the flip side, when we think about women going on this journey as single mothers, when we think about those in the LGBTQIA community, is there anything else that you would recommend in terms of self-advocacy or how to approach this journey? That's a really good question, Nadine. I think In terms of advocacy, if you are a single woman going through this, don't think you're any less than a couple going through this, because I think sometimes that's what happens. You're like, oh, well, I'm not really infertile. Yes, you are. And this goes for any same-sex couples or anything like that. You're unable to create the family that you want to. And I think just from like how you think about it from like an emotional standpoint, redefining what normal is. You know, I think that's something you can do for yourself. And I would say, don't stop advocating for yourself when it comes to, okay, so what does this look like? How do I select, you know, the sperm donor? And what does that look like for you? And still get that support system around you because you're still going through this process, just like a couple that's going through this. Physically, you're going to be going through all of this. I actually met someone who decided I never want to get married, but I desperately want children. And there were all of these other components of having to answer like, or feeling like she had to answer to people of like, what do you mean you don't want to get married? What do you mean you want to do this on your own? And she ended up having twins. And she's like, even to this day, I'm still getting like the side eye, like, well, where's the dad? What do you, and Mm. you know, so it's emotionally difficult in other ways. And I don't want people to discredit that because I think to your point, like we've spent, you know, all this time talking about the couple, but recognizing that there are some who are going to take this path. And you know what, if you want a child and you want to do it on your own, 
you should feel validated in that and you should feel supported in that. And so mm -hmm. all of the questions we've said, though, you know, to ask for yourself, like that applies to you in the absolute same way as it does to someone who's walking into it as a couple. And then I think really finding that support system for yourself because, you know, you don't have the built-in partner to help you with all of this and for shots and stuff. I mean, there are people who are like, if I, my partner needed to do the shots, like you need to have that person or people to help you through this just as much as a couple. Yeah. And I would say even to take it another step is asking for and looking for doctors and clinics who might specialize yes. in single parents who are going through this, who might yes. specialize in same-sex couples, who might specialize in egg donation or sperm donation, any number of things. Like you want the people, as you mentioned earlier, who have seen many cases like yours and who know cases like yours. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Hillary, this has been just a wealth of information. We could have talked for six hours, <laughs> um, but we're going to put so many links in the show notes and tell people where they can find you and tell them about maybe starting a conversation on Instagram where we can get some chats going. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Instagram at Humanize Infertility. And also the website is the same, humanizeinfertility.com. On there, you can also, that's where you can find all the stories right now. I also share stories and on Instagram, I also try to share digestible information. Like, so if a story has I actually did a story about balanced translocation. So then I'll try to provide a little info around that. It's not going to be every detail, but it at least gives you a little nugget of information, I would say. You can also go on the website and um, fill out a form if you want to share your story. And I always welcome that as well. I love talking to individuals going through this. And one of the things that I always ask individuals, there are always two questions, and I would love to hear from those who have listened to our conversation. If you have walked your own path or you are walking your own path of infertility, the whole journey is shocking. The whole journey is hard. But what is like one like shocking thing that you're like, if only someone had told me this, I would have loved to know about that. And then the other question is, if someone is, you know, in the thick of it, what would you share with them? What words would you share with them? I think those are two ways, like sharing that hope, sharing that connection component. I always end stories like that when I'm sharing the stories. I end with what would you tell someone who's in the middle of their journey or still on their journey as a way to like shine a little light at the end of a tunnel that can feel incredibly dark for somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of also hitting on like what gave you hope when you were in the midst of it, what mm -hmm. might give hope. Yeah. So when we post about this episode, I'll make sure to include those questions and we'll get a great conversation going in the comments and hopefully be a source of support. Ultimately, that's what you and I both want from this is for people to feel supported and empowered to leave with knowledge and hope and support. You are doing so much good in the world. I'm so glad that people have you now and I can't wait for them to learn more about you and, and feel supported in their journey. So thank you. Thank you for being on today. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me and for providing this, this space. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Oh, wasn't that a powerful conversation? I feel like it is so chock full of resources and all the links are in the show notes. We want to continue this conversation online. So in today's post about the podcast, we are asking people to share in the comments um, messages of hope, things they wish they had known when going through treatment, things they wish they had heard. What's the most important message you want to share with anyone going through it? Let's continue this conversation online. I am at Nadine Kenny Johnstone on Instagram, and Hillary is at Humanize Infertility. And I hope that if you post about your journey, you will tag both of us and let us be part of this continued conversation. Special thanks to my producer, Michelle Rado, for making this podcast incredible. And remember everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week.